Today's teaching I've entitled Pentecost, Moses, in Acts chapter 2. What do they have in common? You know, most believers do not realize that there are two great and noteworthy Shavuot or, pa- or Pentecosts. They tend to see the one in Acts chapter 2 as the only one. However, there is an earlier one that the second one arises out of. Understanding the first one is essential in order to comprehend and fully appreciate the one in Acts chapter 2. So thank you for joining me in this teaching to connect the dots between the first great Pentecost and the one that we find in Acts chapter 2. Let's talk about those. Moses, the first Pentecost. You know, I was reading some, some commentaries earlier this morning, just perusing the major denominations and what they're saying about Acts chapter 2. And the vast majority of the commentaries refer to Acts chapter 2 as the first Pentecost. They see it as the original Pentecost. They see it as the birth of the church. And yet the Bible talks about the first Pentecost occurring 1,500 years earlier with Moses. That's fascinating when you think about it. I think so many times we have so many denominations and so many different ideas that have resulted in different denominations because we divorced ourselves from not just the Jewish people, but from the book of the people, the Tanakh, which actually precedes and has the antecedent theology that we see presented in the New Testament. So I think a return to the Tanakh, a return to the Torah, and understanding the words of Jesus, understanding the apostles, is essential to understanding what they're saying. So think of this, Moses, the first Pentecost. In Leviticus chapter 23, where we find the origin of this celebration, it talks about counting seven weeks. That's where we get the Hebrew word Shavuot. It means seven weeks. You count seven weeks, seven Sabbaths, And then the day after that, you have this big celebration called Shavuot. It's also called Pentecost. That's the Greek word. Because Moses says in Leviticus 23 that you are to count 50 days. And the Greek word for 50 days is, in fact, Pentecost. So Pentecost is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word for Shavuot, or the Hebrew celebration of Shavuot. Shavuot and Pentecost are the same events. One's the Hebrew way to say it, and the other one's the Greek way of saying it. Pentecost Sunday. You ever heard of that? Pentecost Sunday. This is a major celebration within Christianity. It is celebrated by nearly 1.5 billion believers every year. Did you know that? I mean, I mean, you know, depending on what tradition you come from, if you're Protestant, you probably would not know that. If you're a Pentecostal, you would know that, of course, right? If you're Catholic, you would know that. 1.5 billion believers that celebrate Pentecost Sunday every year, a major festival. And yet they don't realize that actually it's rooted in Shavuot. Shavuot isn't a different festival. It's actually the same festival 
And it didn't start in Acts 2. It started 1,500 years earlier. You know, there's a denomination in Christianity actually called the Pentecostal Church or Pentecostalism. It's a denomination. 600 million plus believers. That's no small fries, right? That's a major denomination. Naming themselves after this festival of Pentecost, which they themselves sees, see as originating in Acts 2. Again, missing the antecedent theology that connects it with, well, we'll get down to that in a moment. Is Acts chapter 2 the only Pentecost? Is Acts chapter 2 the first Pentecost? Is Acts chapter 2 the birth of the church? Acts chapter 7, verses 37 through 38. This is Stephen's defense before they stone him. He's speaking to his own brother, brothers and sisters. And uh, he's talking about their history, and he's referring to Moses in the time of Moses, specifically Sinai. And since Moses was not just, you know, a name that was given to one person, but actually was given to multiple people, right? He wants to clarify which Moses he's talking about. And so he pinpoints the Moses that he's talking about is the one that was at Mount Sinai leading Israel. Listen to what he says. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. The, the word congregation comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Have you ever heard the term ekklesia, the called out ones, right? Ekklesia. We translate that as church. He's the one who was with the church in the wilderness. What? I thought the church didn't start until Acts chapter 2. What church is he talking about? What church is this that's existed in the wilderness in the days of Moses? Tell me more about that church. It says it was in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking with him or to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he, this Moses, received living oracles to pass on to you. I found today, I didn't have a lot of time, I found at least eight standard English translations that actually translate this word ecclesia as church. Pretty bold for the translators to do that because it goes against 2,000 years of, of saying otherwise, basically. Eight different translations that translate it as church. Let me give you one. This is the 21st century King James Version. This is he who in the church in the wilderness was with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received living oracles to give to us. The church in the wilderness. You see, the church began at Sinai, not Acts chapter 2. Now, that's the rebirth, if you will. That's the renewal, if you will. But it existed long before that. In the wilderness with Moses. That's when the church was birthed. In the Greek Septuagint, that is 
the translation of the Tanakh by Jews for Jews in Greek. So in Alexandria, around the Common Era, there were a whole lot of Jews who lost the mother tongue. They couldn't understand Hebrew anymore due, due to the um, uh, exiles. But they spoke Greek because they lived in a Greek world. And so the Hebrew sages had the Septuagint written in Greek. They, they took the Hebrew translation and they translated it into Greek for their Greek-speaking Jewish brothers and sisters. So it is the Greek translation of the Tanakh by Jews for Jews. There's a term in Hebrew, kahal, that's often translated as the congregation of the Lord, the Lord's congregation. Over a hundred times in the Septuagint, they translate it with the Greek word ekklesia. Ecclesia, yeah, the church of the Lord, the congregation slash church of the Lord. They, they, they essentially carry the same meaning. Think about that for a minute. Almost a hundred times, Israel's referred to as the church of the Lord. Yeah, see, this church that Stephen refers to, beginning in the wilderness at Sinai, the, the Septuagint later confirms this whole idea of Israel being that church. So who's the church? Who is the church? Israel is the church. You can, are you catching that? We're, we're taught over and over and over, traditionally, that we're the church, Gentile believers, and then you have Israel. You have the church in Israel. Right? Somehow they're related. No, actually, Israel is the church. Gentile believers, they didn't replace her as the church. No, they get to participate with her as the church. But she's the church. It's clear in the New Testament. It's clear in the Septuagint. God only has one bride. He's, He's not a bigamist. He only has one people. Right? He only has one church. And it's Israel that he called out of Egypt. The called out ones are Israel. And they became the kahal, the congregation of the Lord, translated as ecclesia in the Septuagint, the church of the Lord. It's important for us to understand this. It gives us traction in the New Testament. It gives us, it gives us a context in, in, in order to understand what the New Testament is saying. So this church that began with Moses at Sinai, it started at Pentecost. 50 days out of coming out of Egypt. You can pick up that podcast last week. We talked about the timing of Pentecost, that Sinai actually marked the first Pentecost. You can pick that up and, and uh, uh, listen to that and catch up with us on that. So she uh, becomes the people of God, his assembly, his congregation, his church, if you will, at the first Pentecost, 1,500 years earlier than Acts chapter 2, at Sinai. Now, of course, we have a huge, long history of her failures. She was rebellious. Right? She was unfaithful in her relationship. 
to the point that God finally, after many, many centuries, many, many, so much grace, so much mercy, finally says, that's enough. And he divorced her. And the covenant was done away with. And she has no covenant standing for a, a fairly long period of time where she's alienated from God. The good news is, is God says, you know what? I'm going to remarry you ultimately under a new covenant. I'll take you back again. You'll be my people again, and I will be your God, right? And that was the promise of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. But she'd have to wait for that. And she waited a long time, 1,500 years, until that Passover, that last Passover of Yeshua and his Jewish apostles, his 12 Jewish apostles, 12 being the number of the tribes of Israel because he, being the king of Israel, is reconstituting Israel. He's going he's to reignite, rebirth, recollect his people under a new covenant. And it's at that last Passover Seder that he inaugurates the new covenant. And that next day on the cross, pouring out his blood, he secures and establishes the new covenant. And Israel is reborn. That which was broken down through sin and shame is now being gathered and built up through Yeshua the Messiah. She is the church that began with Moses. She is the one that he came to save. She is the one that he's building up. Fifty days later, after his death at Passover, we have another Pentecost. Some 1,500 Pentecosts have come and went. But little did they know that this Pentecost, 50 days after that Passover, that second and great Passover, with the second and greater Moses, Yeshua, is now going to have a greater Shavuot than the first one. And the first one was pretty spectacular. And after that, the Gentiles will finally be invited, primarily through Peter and Paul, both Jewish apostles, they will be invited. And as a result, the Gentiles will come crashing in in numbers that will overwhelm, not replace, but overwhelm the number of Jewish believers from that time on. The truth of the matter is that Israel has always been and still is the ecclesia. The Gentiles who believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, are grafted into a Jewish olive tree. They then get to participate with a Jewish church started in the days of Moses. We join her. She doesn't join us. We're not our own olive tree. There's only one olive tree, the olive tree of Israel. Paul makes it very clear that we as Gentiles get grafted in and participate, that the tent pegs of Israel are enlarged to accommodate the influx of the Gentiles. The mystery of the gospel is what Paul call, calls it, referring to the promise that was made to Abraham, that God would not only save his descendants, but also the nations. And now it's taking place, being kicked off on the heels of the second 
greater Pentecost that occurs in Acts chapter 2. I was reading one Catholic commentary, and they were saying that Shavuot is a parallel Jewish celebration to the Pentecost that takes place in Acts chapter 2. They're, they're like separate, distinct ones. They kind of are related. They kind of parallel, but they're different. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's take a closer look. When the day of Pentecost, what does Pentecost mean? 50 days. Leviticus 23. You shall count 50 days. And then you're going to have this celebration called Pentecost or Shavuot. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Who's all together in one place? The Jewish disciples of the Jewish Jesus. That's who's there. You, you, when we slow down and read this passage and take some time to really look at the context, the background, who's there, who's speaking, right? Any antecedent theology that's connected to it, our eyes are opened. You look at this Acts 2 passage and you'll find that it's thoroughly Jewish. A Jewish Messiah, Jewish apostles, Jewish followers on a Jewish festival when God pours his spirit out. Where are the Gentiles? Hello, I want, I want to knock on the door of the commentaries. Hello, McVeigh, anybody home? I mean, I was led to believe, and I was taught growing up that Pentecost in Acts 2 was a Gentile phenomenon. This is the birth of the Gentile church in contradistinction to Israel. And I go and read the passage, and I can't find the Gentiles here. It's all Jewish. Yes, the Gentiles are embraced. They come in. They have equal standing after Israel. Paul says salvation, or Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. It comes from the Jews. And then Paul says it's to Israel first, the Jew first, and then the Gentile. The Gentiles grafted in. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Let me give you a Jewish translation of this passage. This is from, I forget which Jewish translation, TLV, Tree of Life, Tree of Life version. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day, as slide 19, great. When the day of what? Shavuot. When the day of Shavuot came, they were all together in one place. This translation, again, is by Jews, Jewish scholars, respected Jewish translators, and they choose Shavuot. Why? Because it's Jews speaking to Jews. Yeah, the Greek would be Pentecost, the Hebrew would be Shavuot. Why? It's the one and same event. It's not two separate festivals. It's one festival. If you want to call it by its Hebrew name, you say Shavuot. If you want to call it by its Greek name, you say Pentecost. Let's take a closer look at these two great Shavuots, the one in Moses' day and the one in Yeshua's day. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to cover a lot of it. I just want to hit the high points. Moses, Exodus 19, 16 through 20. 
This is the third day. They're going to go on the mountain. They're going to become the people of God. God's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to give them his, his Torah. It's amazing when you look at what's going to take place at this first Pentecost. Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast like Pastor Chris. He blows the shofar like no one else, man. It was Pastor Chris on steroids. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, a theophany where God manifests his presence in the natural realm. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. On the top of this mountain, a mega storm. There's fire, there's smoke, and a lot of noise. Just a lot of commotion going on. This is a theophany where God is present in the natural realm for his people. Pretty supernatural. We're a messianic, charismatic congregation. Yet when you look at the issue of signs and wonders and the supernatural power of God, it's present in all of these events. Yeah, this event is a supernatural, charismatic, if you will, event. The Pentecostals, they get it. Maybe they can help the Catholics. No, the Catholics have a beautiful, charismatic kind of renewal thing that's been going on since the 70s there too, so it's, it's, it's good. So here's another perspective on that theophany. Deuteronomy chapter 32, or 33 and verse 2. It said the Lord came from Sinai and and dawned on them from Sierra, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came in the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there were flashing lightning for them. On the mountain, God manifests. And you know who, who, who he brings on the mountain? Tens of thousands of angels, supernatural beings. There's all this angelic activity going on all over the mountain. I mean, heaven's there manifesting on them. There's fire and smoke and thunder, and God's just doing lightning bolts everywhere, you know? I don't know about you guys. I love a good lightning storm. I do. Sometimes me and my wife, we'll, we'll be laying in bed at midnight, and it's just dark, and there'll be a lightning storm going on. And we just lay there and the whole room will just flash light and then just total darkness again. It's like, yeah, do another one. You know, it's like amazing. But you can see in this event so much supernatural activity taking place and signs and wonders. Why? It's the first Pentecost. Something significant's happening here. It's the birth of the church. It's the people of Israel becoming my treasured people. So then God speaks to them and he gives to them the Ten Commandments, which is basically the summary of the covenant. 
The Ten Commandments are even referred to as the covenant. So one of the things we celebrate at Shavuot is the giving of the law. That's one of the hallmarks of Pentecost, the giving of the law. In Acts chapter 2, it's the giving of the Spirit. I think the church acts like, 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 you know, Pentecost is all about the giving of the Spirit, and the law's been done away with. That couldn't be further from the truth. And in Orthodox or in, in traditional forms of Judaism, it's the exact opposite. God gave the Ten Commandments, but there's no outpouring Spirit. That couldn't be further, further from the truth either. Now, what we have is we have the outpouring Spirit and the giving of the commandments related to two significant Shavuot's. It should have been one. We talked about that last week. All of this in Acts 2 could have happened a lot earlier, but they weren't ready. They were full of rebellion and unbelief. So they had to wait for the fullness of that to come. But they got the Ten Commandments, the way of life that's given to those whom God has redeemed out of Egypt. Let me give you the Chabad translation of the Tanakh. It's the, uh, they call it the um, Complete Jewish Bible. Exodus 20.15 says this, And all the people at that event, with all the commotion going on, it says, And all the people saw the voices. They saw the voices. They translate thunders as voice, because I, I think the word is coal, and it, you can translate it as thunder or as voice. It, you, you know, you, you get to decide that as a translator. So they choose to translate it as they saw the voices instead of the thunders. Why? You can't see thunder. You can't see thunder. Well, you say, and rightfully so, you can't see voices either. Really? Okay, we'll get to that. And all the people saw the voices and the torches. The sound of the shofar and the smoking mountain and the people saw and trembled and they stood from afar. That was the failure of Israel. If they had came up onto the mountain at the queue when they should have, the sounding of the shofar, we'd have Acts 2 happening right there. But they didn't. And so Acts 2 gets postponed for 1,500 years. That was last week. You can go back and listen to that. Let me come back to my point. How do you see a voice? Minister Don, if you'll bring up uh, the Aramaic Bible. So I want to read uh, from the Targumim. These are ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible with commentary. So again, uh, by the first century, because Israel had been in exile and under the domination of Persia and then later Greece, uh, she had lost her mother tongue. She didn't speak Hebrew anymore. The, the Jewish people, they, they spoke Greek, and they spoke a watered-down kind of... Um, dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic, okay? And, uh, and so what they decided is uh, once they were all back in the land, they were reading the Torah portions every week in the temple and in the synagogues. And they were being read in Hebrew because the priests, they understood Hebrew. But the common people had lost that as a mother tongue. And so the Sanhedrin said, we got to fix this problem. Because it's being read every week, but the people don't understand what's being read. So they commissioned the greatest sages of that era to translate the Hebrew into Aramaic, the language of the people. Translate it into Aramaic and also give the meaning of 
the text. Now that's revolutionary because what that resulted in is translations that didn't just translate, but they also gave commentary on what the text meant because the Sanhedrin said not only have they lost their understanding of the Hebrew, they don't even remember the, 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 the meaning of the text. The oral traditions have been lost as well. So you have to just you know, put it in their language and then tell them what it means based on the oral traditions. The history is handed down uh, in, the, in the people group uh, orally. So that's what we end up with. It's called the Aramaic Bible or the Targum. Plural, Targumim. I bought these in Israel like, what, 25 years ago. Uh, they weren't even translated into English until about 25 years ago. So for many, many centuries, they were just left untranslated in terms of English. And then all of a sudden, you know, like overnight, uh, they decided to go ahead and publish in English, and I bought them right away. So uh, let me read to you from the Aramaic. This, this is what would have been given to the Jewish people in the synagogue as being read on the Shabbat. So I want to read, let's see. From the first book, it's going to be a targum called Neophyte. And this is Exodus chapter 20. And this is when God spoke the, the Ten Commandments. Keep in mind all of the supernatural activity going on, okay? I already read about that in our, in our uh, Hebrew translations into English. This is the Aramaic. The Aramaic gives not only the translation in Aramaic, which is now into English, but also the backdrop of the passage and what it means. Ready? And the Lord spoke all the praise of these words, saying, the first word that went out from the mouth of the Holy One, may his name be blessed, was like shooting stars and lightnings and like torches of fire. That's why the Chabad, understanding the oral traditions and the Targums, actually translated as they saw his voice and saw the torches of fire. So like torches of fire, a torch of fire to the right, a torch of fire to the left, it flew and winged swiftly in the air of the heavens and came back. And all Israel saw it and feared, and returning, it became engraved on the two tables of the covenant and said, my people. And it came back and hovered over the camps of Israel and returning, it became engraved on the tables of the covenant and all Israel beheld it. And they cried out and said, My people, children of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who redeemed you and led you out, redeemed from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. God speaks, and out of his mouth, like shooting stars, goes the words that he spoke. What he spoke was manifested in like light, like fire. And the people saw what God spoke. What he said, they could see because the, 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 the words that came out were in letters of fire that actually were the words that he just spoke so they could actually read what they heard with their ears. They saw it. It was words of fire. Let me go to another targum. This is uh, Pseudo-Jonathan. Same text. 
The Lord spoke all these words, saying, The first word, when it came forth from the mouth of the Holy One, may his name be blessed, was like shooting stars, like lightning, and like flames of fire. Speech like fire. Tongues of fire. Are you connecting? A fiery torch on its right, a fiery torch on its left, flying and floating in the air of the heavens. It returned and was seen over the camps of Israel. God speaks, the words come out, they can see them and read them. Fiery language or, or language that manifested as a fire. Tongues of fire, languages of fire. And they're over their heads. They're looking up. It's over the camp of Israel. And they're seeing what God spoke with his mouth. Let's go now to Acts chapter 2 and read it. So here they are gathered together. The day of Pentecost has come. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. What did it sound like? A rushing wind? A violent rushing wind. The author describes it in terms of violence. Right? This rushing wind is so outrageous. It's so strong. It's so terrifying. It'd be like a it'd be like, you know, be, being being in the path of like, you know, a class five tornado. You ever been you ever heard, heard a tornado? Man, it sounds like it sounds like, you know, train engines just fully opened up, right? It's so amazing and overwhelming. So from heaven comes this violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Noise and commotion, just like the first Pentecost. There's nothing gentle about this. There's nothing calm about this. It's sudden, it's fierce, and it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's like the first Pentecost happening all over again. Verse 3, And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Tongues as of fire. Why? What does that mean? We always think of kind of the cow tongue of fire, you know? That's what we think of, right? And it can be translated as that. And it can equally be translated, based on the Greek, as languages of fire. Yeah. If you look at the antecedent theology of God speaking and they saw what he spoke because it became manifested in flames of fire, a language on fire, I think that maybe Acts chapter 2 is a replay of all that. That what is above their heads is God speaking his blessing over them. This is, this is the first Pentecost coming into its fullness. It's being completed. What began there now is being completed. Language on fire above their heads. I, I bet they were just looking and, 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 and just interacting with God as he, as he spoke to them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Other languages that perhaps the speakers were unaware of. These could be heavenly languages. 
the language of angels, the language of God. I know you think God speaks Hebrew. God speaks all languages and probably languages that are unknown to humanity. But there are other languages. And what are they doing? They're proclaiming the high praises of God with spiritual words that are supplied by the Holy Spirit. This is the only thing that's unique to the second Pentecost. Everything else has already happened. Everything else is the same. This is the only thing that's unique. In the second Pentecost, God pours out his spirit. The first Pentecost, they would have got that, but they were too rebellious. They stood from afar. They fell back instead of coming up. So they did, they missed what, what God had intended for them. They had to wait 1,500 years. And now here they are being rebirthed, reconstituted, finally entering into the fullness of what God had for them. This speaks of what we talked about in weeks gone by, that God desires a personal relationship. He wants to interact with you. He wants to live with you. He wants to live in you and fellowship, commune with you, to know you and to be known by you. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Who's there again? Jews. Where are the Gentiles? They're not there. Why would the Gentiles be there? It's a Jewish event. It's Shavuot. They're not even privy to it. The proselytes might be, but not the Gentile masses in general. Who's, who's there? The Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Yeah, what happens in the diaspora, they got spread out through the Roman Empire. But at the pilgrimage festivals, many of them traveled and came to Jerusalem. And here they are from all the various nations that they were scattered to in Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Shavuot. And it's there that God pours out his spirits. It's there that they step forward rather than falling back. It's there that 3,000 Jews become believers on that day. That's amazing. That's a pretty big event. That really is uh, reminiscent of what happened at the first, or connected to that first great event. Now, as they're speaking, it says, each of them are hearing in their own hearing those praises that they're praising God with. In other words, here's all these Jews, shoulder to shoulder, came to see all this commotion, right? And they're standing there shoulder to shoulder, all speaking different dialects, being from different parts of the Roman Empire. And they're all standing there going, you hear that? You hear what he's saying? I mean, I hear in, in my own language, and the guy next to you is saying, really? Because I hear in my language, not your, I hear it in my dialect. Yeah, these people are speaking praises to God by the Spirit of God in a language probably unknown to them or anybody else. And the gift here is the gift of hearing or interpretation so that that fell on the people so that all the people could hear in their own native tongue, their own dialect, what those apostles were lifting up to the heavens. We call that the gift of tongues. Now, others were mocking the apostles. It says in verse 13, but others were mocking and saying, they're drunk. You know, they're full of sweet wine. Uh, yeah. why, why would they say that? Why would they say they're drunk? Because those apostles were so ecstatic in their behavior. 
They were in the midst of a theophany. The presence of God had fallen. There's signs and wonders everywhere. And then God pours out his spirit. And there's just so much joy that they're just speaking and praising God, right? They're probably stumbling and reeling around in the presence of God with such great joy that it looks like it's a party and they've drunk too much. So they're mocking them, saying, look, they're just drunk. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's early morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That which Joel said would come in the last days is here. That's what you're witnessing right now. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sinai, even Acts chapter 2. I mean, he's describing the events that are taking place in these two great Pentecosts. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Yeah, all these signs and wonders are still here. They still happen from time to time. They're coming before the end comes. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved oh happy day when jesus took my sin away right i mean this opens the door it opens the door for the outpoured spirit for being born again for being filled with god's presence for being able to be his representative to be able to give words and encourage people i mean you guys are prophetic you guys are a very prophetic group you know and I'm just telling you, that's our legacy. That's what we're called to do. We're called to speak on God's behalf. I've heard your stories. You have some really powerful stories of sharing prophetic words with people around you and how it's transformed their lives. You know, I just, I just, I'm, I'm, I stand amazed when I, I hear these stories and I just kind of chuckle inside. I say, of course, you're a son. You're a daughter of God. Of course, you're going to speak on behalf of God and it's going to bring about change. And the people are going to say, you know, how'd you know that? Or, 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 or who told you that? And your response is, God did by his spirit. He lives in me. Would you like him to come into your life? You know, and then lead people to Christ. This is our legacy. This is our Pentecost. This is the outward spirit so that you and I can represent the king of heaven, heaven and to share the gospel with those around us. So then Peter gives a sermon. It's very short, very sweet. He basically says, you know, the, the Messiah, the one that you love, that you've been waiting for forever, you murdered him on the cross. Shock and awe. And not just them, but the Gentiles. The Romans actually did the dirty work. But which says both Jews and Gentiles killed him. The point I'm just trying to make is that 
All of us are responsible for the death of Jesus. The good news is it provided for our atonement. God's not mad at you. He loves you. So the result is this. After he gives the sermon and tells them, they respond with this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you, like us, will receive this beautiful, wonderful, powerful Holy Spirit. God will come and dwell in you, and everything will be restored. Verse 39, for the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Those are the Gentiles, by the way. That's, that's the nations. All those who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from the corruption all around you. Is that not a relevant word for us today? No, the call to be saved from the corruption all around us? God is in the saving business. We have a chance to be saved from all of this. And how do we do that? We turn away from our sins and we turn to Jesus. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. And when we do that, God's promise is this. I will forgive you cause you to be born again, and I will come and indwell you, and I will be with you forever, so that no matter what is going to happen for you, everything's going to be okay. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So with this word, those who received it were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is our season. This is our festival for all believers, Jews and Gentiles. This is our way of life. This is our empowerment. This is our glory, the presence of God in our lives. So let's press in. Let's open our hearts in this season. Let's be filled again with the Spirit. Let's ask him to come in and renew us over and over and over. Let's get ready. Let's get ready. What I want is us pressing in, doing business with God, making sure that we're repenting of our sins, right? Being right with God and asking his spirit to come dwell us. Why? Because if we get filled with the spirit of God and renew this summer, we have the opportunity to lead others to Christ and advance his kingdom and build this church along with other churches in the body of Messiah, so that the church might rise up in the midst of all this corruption and be that shining light leading others into this glorious salvation. Amen. Shabbat shalom.